Have you ever wanted to discover what's missing in your life? Metaphysics is available to all and is part of your life even if you don't know it. Welcome to Metaphysics, a view through the veil with Barb Crowley. Together we'll explore the mysteries behind metaphysics and how to use it to have a deeper understanding and advantage in life. And now here's your host, Barb Crowley. Hi, this is Barb Crowley and welcome to Metaphysics, a view through the veil. Today we're going to talk about the mysticism of Africa. What is the healing paradigm of Africa? And we have Lionel Friedberg here with us to to bring us through his journey. Lionel was born and grew up in South Africa. He is the author of three nonfiction books, New York Times and LA Times bestselling author. He also is a world-famous, world-globe-trotting uh, cinematographer, as well as an author, writer, producer, director. <laughs> I mean, his um, achievements are very, very long. One I want to bring up, though, Primetime Emmy Award for cinema- Cinematography. Um, his latest book, Forever in My Veins, is autobiographical, um, and he talks about how film led him to the mysterious world of the African shaman. So, you know, I'd like to welcome Lionel in to bring us through his story and to introduce us really to the healing paradigm of Africa. Welcome to the show, Lionel. Hi, Bob. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure being with you. Thank you for having me on your show. Thanks for being here. It's great. It's an honor to me. So tell me, Africa so dark continent is dark to me in the sense that I am ignorant of um, so much of um, I, I have to back up a little bit about your book. Your book was enlightening to me on apartheid, the history of, of Africa and South Africa. Um, the, it, it really was a very educational as well as entertaining. So I want to thank you on that. And that's before we got to the shaman. So, it's a fabulous book. I think everybody should Thank go you. out and buy it. And, and, you know, you can get it everywhere, really. Barnes & Noble, Amazon, I think it's available everywhere. It's available everywhere, yeah. They, yeah. It's in bookstores and online. Uh, yeah, sure. Mm-hmm. Great. So, so, so let, yeah, um, well, you, you asked the question, and I, I'll see, I'll, I'll do the best I can to take folks on this journey with me. Um, Mm-hmm. Do you want me to begin at the beginning, uh, how it all began? All right. It sounds to me like um, when you grew up, you had a number of servants, really, that, that supported your family. And through the, the black servants, they brought you into their world of medicine. And that was your first introduction. And it's unusual, really, for a white person to have been brought that deeply and to open up that open, as you did, into the world of shamanism or their medicine. I shouldn't call it shamanism. I'm not sure if that's what it's called, but their medicine. So why don't we start with that and your first introduction and what it is. Okay. So as you correctly said, I I grew up um, in South Africa during the dark days of apartheid, which was a racial system that divided society straight down the middle between white and black. The twain never met. 
the rules of, of, of the land were um, separate entrances, separate churches, separate beaches, separate stores, separate everything for everybody. The races could not um, get together in any way whatsoever, and it was illegal for black people to be in certain white areas unless they had a what was known as a permit or a passbook, as the as the black folks used to call it there. If they didn't have permission to be in a white area, they would be sent back to their to their tribal homeland. Now South Africa is a big country, and they're basically even today there are eleven official languages in South Africa, which gives you some idea of how many tribal groups there are. The biggest the biggest two, of course, are the Zulus and the Kozas. Nelson Mandela was a Koza, uh, but there are others. There are many. There are Tswanas and Sutus. I won't go into all the names because it doesn't mean anything to anybody. But um, so folks, black people would come to white areas for work, for, for working in, in, in industry or as domestic servants. And because we were privileged whites at that time, we all had black servants in our home. And I was a little tight, probably around, I don't know, maybe six or seven years old. I was probably, I think I might have been, no, I must have been in the first grade. So I was, you know, maybe five or six years old. And I was an only child. And at that particular time, we were living in a small town to the, just to the northeast of Johannesburg, uh, maybe 25 miles away. Today, the big international airport is right next to that little town. The town is called Kempton Park. And I grew up there and my folks had a business in town. And um, it was must have been school holidays because I was at home. My folks weren't there and we had, I had my nanny, you know, she looked after me. Um, and one day, every Thursday, those days as a child, I distinctly remember this. Every Thursday was the domestic servants day off. They would have half a day off Thursday afternoons as well as Sundays. And so it was a Thursday afternoon, it has to be, because that was the only day that these folks had any time off. My nanny said to me, I want to go and see a friend this afternoon. Do you want to come with me? And I said, sure, I'll go along with her. And she said, okay, he, she lives just down the road. And um, so she took me along with her to go and visit a friend. And this, this particular friend of hers was a woman who lived just like all the servants did in a little room in the back yard of the house in a tiny little room with a, a single bathroom, only cold water, a very, very rough toilet, virtually a, a, a hole in the walls, in the, in, in the floor, uh, but it could be flushed and, and had a shower in it and a little tiny room, no electricity. Um, none of these servants' rooms at that time had electricity. I mean, things were really sparse for those people. It was absolutely abominable the way they were treated. But anyway, I loved this woman, and um, as I loved all my nannies, and I, I remember them all distinctly, and, and very often, even today, before I go to sleep, I think about all of them, and I try and make a connection with them, because they all played some kind of role in my life. They used to tell me amazing stories, tribal stories, ghost stories, um, legends and mythologies of the tribes, and it was just wonderful, and sing to me, and, um, wonderful songs, lullabies. Anyway, I'm digressing. So we went down the road to her friend. And when we got to her friend's little house in the backyard, I saw there was a two or three people waiting to go into the room. And I said to my nanny, I said, um, why are there so many people here? You know, are they also her friends? And she said, no, no, they have come to see her because she is also a doctor. And I thought, what? A doctor? What do you mean by doctor? She said, Oh, she, she makes people better. She heals people. 
And I thought, wow, that's interesting. Uh, I wonder what that's all about. Anyway, these folks went into her room and then, then they came out and they were all, all of them carried little paper bags with something inside. I have no idea what. And then left and they, were, they looked sort of uh, pleased with what they did. And then my nanny and I went inside to see her and she was a very sweet woman. And when I got into this room, I was absolutely engulfed in aromas and smells that I could not identify. And there were objects in that room that I had no idea what they were. There were shelves all over the room and there were lots of little containers, little clay pots and jars and bottles containing powders and uh, bulbs and roots and herbs and grasses and all sorts of things. And I looked around and I said to her, what do you do with all this stuff? And she said to me, well, I am a Sangoma. It was the first time that I heard that word. Um, I knew, as did most of my friends, knew that Africans, black people, practiced traditional healing. But most whites just scoffed at it, you know, said, oh, well, you know, that's, that's just BS, you know, what do they know about healing? And, uh, and, and, and a, lot of, a lot of black people at that time, if they were ill, and, and, and you would ask them, my, my parents, for example, said to my nanny one day, she wasn't feeling well. And my mother said to her, do you want to go to the doctor? I'll take you to see the doctor. She said, no, 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 I, I will see my own kind of doctor. And so those people, the, 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 the local black community would go and see a Sangoma. And there were always Sangomas in the area, uh, such as this friend of my nanny's. And she explained to me what she did, that she would mix uh, look med medications from all the stuff on these shelves, whether they were powders or herbs or wh whatever they were, she would grind them up and turn them into powder and give them to patients who came to see her about illnesses or problems that they had. And I thought, wow, that's incredible. And I said, how do you know that? Because as far as I know, a doctor would wear a stethoscope, you know, and put it against your heart and, you know, listen to your heartbeat, whatever. How do you know how to tell them what's wrong with them? And she said, sit down. And I sat down on the floor with my nanny and there was a little grass mat on the floor. And on this grass mat was a little uh, leather bag um, in an, a rough animal hide a skin bag, uh, obviously of some sort of antelope. Um, and she said, pick it up. And I picked it up and she said, shake it. And I shook it and I heard clink, 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 clink. And she said, that is what I use to tell people what's wrong with them. And she said, turn the bag upside down. And I did that. And what fell out were a lot of little tiny bones, the size of little chicken bones and things. But they weren't chicken bones. There were other kinds of bones that I couldn't identify. And other bits and pieces. There were like pebbles in there. And there were almost, there were even little bottle tops and little charms, they, a whole variety of things. How did they choose and, um, what to have in there? I, I, I think it's it's almost instinctive. Um, whatever whatever they relate to, whatever they feel speaks to them. It's okay, like so you know, if I go if I go on a beach or I go on a walk even now and I see a shell lying there or an interesting looking pebble or even a feather, and I have lots of birds in the garden and often the birds leave a feather for me. I I pick up the feather and I I, I have a, a a connection. I relate to that. I like mm -hmm. I like I just feel that there's a connection with me and, and the natural world. And I think they do it the same way. They, they, it's, it's a feeling that they have, that they know right. that this will be some kind of a device or a tool that they can add to their tool bag. This is their bone kit. Mm -hmm. um, so what, what they do is 
connection. Yes, it's very virtually intuitive for these extra pieces. But in, I'll, uh, I'll, I'll, maybe we, we, we're getting ahead of ourselves because I didn't know that at the time, but I do know this now, that every bone set of every Sangama has to have some specific bones in it. There has to be a, a, a bone of a goat, a crocodile, a hyena, a lion, various animals from the wild, um, uh, certain deers. Now, these are small bones. You know, these aren't huge, big femurs. And, you know, these are mm-hmm. little tiny, tiny, tiny bones. Um, and the way the bones fall tells them a story. And the way the bones fall, it is believed that it is the ancestors of the client, the patient, the person who mm-hmm. has come to consult the Sangoma. It is the ancestors of, of the client that influences the way the bones fall. And then the Sangoma, the Sangoma's ancestors help them to interpret the way the bones have fallen. So, for example, a lion represents energy and power. If the bone falls in a certain way, it means it's, it's, a, it's a dominant power. You will overcome obstacles. If it is upside down, depending on, you know, on the way the bone falls, then you are going to be overcome by something else. Maybe you are going to be subjected to um, some kind of uh, evil force or some sort of illness. And so if one bone crosses another, each of these, the, the pattern tells the Sangomas a whole story. And, you know, I, w- I can't possibly go into detail because it's way too complicated. And I don't learn? fully understand. Do they inherit from their family or generational? How do they acquire this ability? You have to go to a teacher. You have to go and learn at the foot of what I suppose in, in Eastern philosophy you will call a master or a guru. Um, that's, they don't use that term, of course, but they will go to a, 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 an existing Sangoma who can spend years teaching them the craft, how to and interpret how the bones. Choose it. So are they born into it, or you know, normally, they just normally want to become? No, it's very, very seldom that you choose to be that. It's become today, of course, it's very fashionable to be a sangoma because the traditional African style of healing today is recognised by the government. As 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 a, as a as a as a as a healing system, it's recognised by the Department of Health. But in those days, during the apartheid days, when uh, when uh, you know the blacks were basically subjected to white laws and regulations and separated, those things were frowned upon, and they weren't recognised at all. Um, but what would happen was invariably, a person would wake up with a terrible pounding headache, or an an illness, or a fever. And would go and consult a Sangoma and say, what's wrong with me? And the Sangoma would say to them, ah, it's your ancestors knocking at the door. It's the <laughs> fever, the headache, the whatever you're experiencing. It's a sign that you are being called by your ancestors to become a healer. And I speak with um, experience of this because I have a, a, a friend uh, who suffered the most incredible migraines for years and years. And Sangomas would tell him, it's your ancestors. They're telling you, you have to learn the way of the Sangoma. Mm-hmm. And he didn't believe this uh, until he, he eventually took up the, 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 the message that he was given and found himself a teacher in a place called Eswatini, which is uh, the old country of Swaziland. Uh, Eswatini is sandwiched between South Africa and Mozambique. It's a, 
It's a wonderful mountain kingdom. It's the only kingdom that still exists in South Africa with the, the king who is in absolute charge of that country. Um, anyway, um, it's a beautiful, beautiful country. And so he learned. He went to find a teacher. And the teacher said, why did you take so long? You should have, you know, he read the bones. And he said, why did you take so long to, to get the message? Your ancestors have been calling you for years. And, and it was true. That's how he knew that he was being called. You were given a sign. You're either given an illness or you're given bad dreams or something like that. Or it usually comes, uh, it often comes in dreams to these folks. Um, we're going to take today, a break course, here, the Lionel. I hate yeah. to break here with you, but um, we're going to take a break. And we're going to, um, we're going to, now that we've learned what it is, when we come back, we're going to talk about how this has influenced your life. And, um, right. and you can... It's a fascinating story, so come on back. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. One thing's for certain. Life is uncertain. Do you navigate the unknowns? Visit aviewthroughtheveil.com to sign up for psychic readings and classes with Barb Crowley. You can schedule one-to-one sessions with Barb for personal and relationship counseling, pet communication, mediumship, career and business direction, or sign up for one of her classes. Everyone has answers through the metaphysical plane, but they need help to access them. Get the help you need today. Visit aviewthroughtheveil.com. We're with you wherever Alexa and Google are. At home, in the car, on your smart TV, and your connected devices. Hey, Alexa. Hey, Google. Play my favorite Voice America podcast on TuneIn. It's just that easy. But don't forget to make sure you actually mention the name of the podcast show to make it work. You are listening to Metaphysics, A View Through the Veil with Barb Crowley. To reach the live show, please call in to 1-888-346-9141. That's 1-888-346-9141. You may also send an email to aviewthroughtheveil at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Hi, we're back with Lionel Friedberg, and we are talking about how film brought him to African shamanism. To, um, and, and Lionel was just telling us the basis of African shamanism or medicine or uh, Sangoma, as it's called there. And now he's going to tell us how it impacted his life. So I'm going to hand it back to you, Lionel. Thanks. Okay, so um, let's, let's jump ahead a few years now. I, I was talking about my childhood earlier, but when I had finished high school, um, my father uh, decided to, 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 to leave the country. And because apartheid was a very, very iniquitous system to live under, and uh, he'd had enough of that. My mother was born in South Africa. My father was originally from Latvia, and he found the whole system pretty abominable. 
And um, he decided to leave the country and take a job in what was uh, then known as Northern Rhodesia, which was a British man, uh, British colonial territory way up in Central Africa to run a, a, a little business up there. My father was a watchmaker by trade, and he took a job to become a watchmaker and managing a little jewelry store up in a copper mining district of Northern Rhodesia. I'm talking about 1961 now. And um, the end of 60, I finished high school and um, my, my dad left. My mother and I followed him and uh, to this, this area called Northern Rhodesia. Northern Rhodesia uh, today is known as Zambia. And it sits right at the southern part of the Congo. At that time, it used to be the Belgian Congo. But now all these countries were becoming independent. The European powers were giving up their, their, their African territories and uh, giving these countries independence. One of the first, of course, was the Belgian Congo, and it became the, uh, the independent democratic republic of the Congo. And a civil war broke out immediately. But nevertheless, things were unstable. But right to the south was this area called Northern Rhodesia, which was British. And that was eventually going to become independent. But at that time, it wasn't. My father took this job. And everyone said, are you crazy? You're going to the middle of Central Africa. What are you doing? He said, no, I'm going up there. Um, it'll be a better, better life and we're away from apartheid. And he went to live in this very, very small town. And of course, I, I followed. I went with him. Um, and when I got there, I, you know, it was very difficult for me to, to find something to do because I now had to find a, a future, a career. My mother said, why don't you go back to South Africa, go to university, get yourself a degree. I, I wasn't interested in doing that. What I wanted to do was make movies. I always wanted to become a filmmaker. And I thought that I'd make, you know, I'd be able to make films about, you know, African tribes and all sorts of wonderful things. But yeah, how did you do this? I was just a kid out of school. And a miracle happened because the very, very first television station in Central Africa began operating in this copper mining district of Northern Rhodesia. And like a gift from heaven, I got a job there. And uh, it was just the most amazing thing of my life because this is a dream come true for me. I always loved the movies. Uh, I'd never seen television in my life because we didn't have it in South Africa because television was kept away from South Africa until 1976 because the government did not want black people to see how the rest of the world lived. That's how bad things were. So it was only 1966 when television came. But anyway, that's, that's a side. So I got a job at the station and it was absolutely wonderful. And I became a cameraman eventually in the studio, working on all sorts of wonderful shows, uh, tribal shows, musical shows, schools, broadcasts, um, particularly for black schools in the areas where there was a shortage of teachers. And in the, in the evenings, we did programs for the white community, the white miners. So it was a wonderful grab bag of things to do. And that was the beginning of my career as a filmmaker. And I had the most wonderful time of my life until 1964, when Britain decided to give Northern Rhodesia its independence. And, for, and it would soon become the Republic of Zambia. And as soon as that happened, all of us uh, white employees at the station, which was privately owned, we got a pink slip. And in there, we were told that the station was nationalized by the government and that we all had six months uh, and, and, and then we had to leave. The, the, all of our jobs were going to be given to, to local black people, which was totally understandable. It was now their country. My dilemma, however, was what was I going to do with my life? I was living there in the middle of Central Africa. There was just a sea of jungle and forests around me everywhere. Where do I go from there? 
And so we had a servant at home and um, I was really very, very distressed about all of this. And I thought, what am I going to do? I don't particularly want to go back to South Africa. And I said to my servant, uh, our servant, David uh, Fury was his name. I said, David, um, you know, I've been, I've been told I've got to leave. And he said, oh, no, no, no. And I said, yeah, and I don't want to go to South Africa. What am I going to do? He said, well, let me see if I can find someone to help you. And uh, a couple of days later, he came back and he said, All right, I've got someone and we'll go there on whatever day it was. And so we went out into the outside the town where I lived, which is called Ndola. And we drove a few miles into the middle of nowhere and we went to a little settlement and we went to the edge of the settlement. And David said, yeah, there is the place, that, that little house over there, at the edge of the settlement was a little single house all on its own. And he said, this is, I said, who lives here? Who's going to help? Who is this person? He said, you will see. Anyway, we get to the hut and he knocks on the door and this little ancient old lady arrives at the door speaking no English. And she beckons us to come into the hut where she lived. And as soon as I went inside, I smelt a memory was triggered in my, in my, in my mind of my childhood because I started smelling the same stuff that I smelt in that servant's, that Sangoma's room way, way back when I was a kid. The similar smells and similar sights of all these strange things and animal skins and skulls and all sorts of things around. And I thought, wow, this woman is a Sangoma. They don't call them Sangomas in, in Zambia because they speak the Bemba language. There, there they're known as Ngangas, but it's the same thing as the Sangoma in South Africa. And she told me. Sangoma is a medicine person. Sangoma basically is a Zulu word and it means a, a soothsayer, a foreteller of someone who can foretell the future, basically, mm -hmm. who can see okay. into the future. And medium as well talks to your it's a, it's a medium because Sangomas do many things. They wear many hats. They talk to the spirits. They talk to the, to the dead. Uh, they they, they, uh, they uh, diagnose illnesses. They can uh, um, um, interpret your dreams. They do many, many things. It's all part of the healing system. It's not, not separated. Everything, they see you as a whole. Mm -hmm. and, and the way to do that is to, is to make contact with the ancestors, and the ancestors will help you, the individual, the patient, to heal by telling the Sangoma what you need to do. And these are your ancestors they're talking to. Yes, them. yes, yeah. the, the patient's yeah. ancestors, correct. Everything is mm -hmm. through ancestors. Um, so anyway, this, this little old lady, she sat me down on her floor, and there was a grass mat, and there was this little animal skin bag, and she said to David in, in Bemba, she was talking Bemba, that was the language they use up there. She told him that I must pick up the bag, say my name into the bag and blow into it, which I did. And then turn the bag upside down and all these little bones and things fell out of it. There were dice in there. Uh, there were marbles in there. There were little trinkets in there as well as these bones, the usual set of bones. And she looked at this and she said to me, the very first thing she said to me, well, she said to David, because she was speaking Bimba, she said, oh, she covered her eyes and she said, what are these bright lights? I can't see past these bright lights. And David said to me, she wants to know what the bright lights are. Wow. And I, the minute I heard that, I thought, this is not BS. This woman is actually seeing something. Mm -hmm. Because what she was seeing were the lights of the television station in the studio. Yeah. That's what she was seeing. The minute she said that, I said, you, I thought to myself, you better listen to what this lady has to say because she's for real. <laughs> and for the next hour, 
she just, there was a flow of information that came out of this woman. She'll babble away, and David was trying his best to keep up with her. And I was trying to remember all of these things and try to make notes as much as I could. But I, eventually I stopped because it was impossible. There was so much information that she was giving him. She basically foretold my entire life. She could foresee into the next 60 odd years of my life that I would marry twice, that I would have four children. She, would eat, she even told me how many grandchildren I would have. And all of those things have come true. But the astounding thing was, you know, I was waiting for her to tell me what to do with my life. She told me a lot of other things. And one of the things she said was, one day I will cross the great water and I will go far to the north. And there I will go to where there are even more bright lights and there will be many famous people. And that's where you will do your work. Basically, she was telling me that I would go to North America and I would you know, eventually end up here in L.A., which is where I am now working in the film industry. But mm -hmm. she know what those were because this this woman probably never went more than 10 miles 20 miles away from this little place where she was where she was born she didn't know anything about it. she'd never seen the ocean and zambia is a landlocked country she didn't even know about the ocean. she'd never seen it and she said i would cross this big water and didn't go to she the also tell you that a, a wild beast was well let me tell you about some of the things that she said and here some of it was really really very scary i didn't understand any of it at the Which time. Which is a good thing, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah, because it would have scared the daylights out of me. And well, right. it did. She told right. me this because I had no clue what she was saying. One of the things she said to me was, one day in your work, you will be in, you will, you, you will, you will encounter a, a, a great beast and this great beast will almost kill you. You must be very, very careful. And I had no clue what she was talking about. I, you know, I had images of dinosaurs and dragons and heaven knows what. What is she talking about? And it was only many, many years later, and I will tell you in a minute what, what she meant. Another thing she told me was one day, and she always said, in your work, she said, one day in your work, you will go to a world where there is no color. There is no color in this place at all. It's just white. Everything is white. And I thought, what is she talking about? She's talking like, you know, as, as this is something out of a Walt Disney movie. What's she referring to? Mm -hmm. And she said to me also, another thing that she said was, um, you, will, you will be on the big water and, and the big water will also try to take your life. And I had no idea what that was. Yeah. Uh, and that came true as well. I was, you know, on many, many years later, I was on, on a research ship in the Southern Ocean and we almost capsized at sea. She, she saw all of the stuff, absolutely real. But the most strangest thing that she said was, she said to David, she held up her hand and she put her fingers together. And that's an African symbol for closeness. She put her fingers together and she said to David, oh, she clapped her hands like this. And she said to him, this man, he will one day meet a man who was very, very close. That's when she held up her fingers and like to David, she said, he will meet a man who was one of the closest people to the most evil persons who ever lived in all of history. And I thought, yeah. what's that all about? And it was scary because I thought, you know, who is, am I going to meet a, a, an ax murderer? Who, who, who? A mad man. Yeah. <laughs> and you know, uh, Bob, the most amazing thing was all of these things that she told me came to pass. 
I'll give you the first example. Let's talk about the the great beast as an ex- as mm-hmm. as an example of 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 her predictions. In 1967, I went and made a a film in Mozambique for a guy called Spud Millen. Spud Millen, Arthur Millen was his name. He had a toy company here in in California called Whammo. Whammo was the company that marketed the hula hoop, which was a huge. I remember it. Yeah. You remember in the 50s? It still sells, actually. Everybody had a hula hoop in the world. And Mm -hmm. that's what his company made a fortune. And that was the company that marketed the Frisbee. And Mm -hmm. of course, the Frisbee is still very, very famous. So, So Spud and his toy company made an absolute fortune. And one day Spud decided to, to go on safari in Mozambique to, to go and shoot wild animals. Now, I never understood why people would want to do that. What was the reason? What, what, where do guys get their kicks out of killing wild animals? It never made sense to me. So one day I get a telephone call in South Africa, and it's a Swedish producer. And he says to me, Lionel, I've got a client coming out from the United States, coming from California. His name is Arthur Mellon. And he's got two friends and they're doing a safari in Mozambique and they want a film made of the safari. Are you interested in doing that? Uh, at this time, I, you know, I was a freelance cinematographer and I thought the idea of doing a film about killing wild animals absolutely horrified me. But I wanted to find out why they did it. What was the reason? What was, where did they get their kicks out of doing this kind of thing? That's why I took the job. Anyway, I went to Mozambique and I met up with Spud, who was an absolute sweetheart of a guy. And he had two friends. One was a stockbroker. One was a, uh, a lawyer here from L.A. And they had every gun imaginable. They, had, they came with an arsenal, you know, that's <laughs> like fighting a civil war. And uh, they went on this very, very expensive, super sophisticated safari. And, of course, they all had permission to shoot various animals. They had licenses to shoot hippos and buffaloes and elephants and lions and everything else. So one day it was the turn of one of the guys to go and shoot an elephant. And the, the guy who led the safari was a white guy uh, who could speak Portuguese, the local language, which is the language of Mozambique, because Mozambique was a territory of Portugal. And so, you know, um, we went out to look for this elephant herd and we tracked them. And we went on foot. We eventually had to leave our vehicles because the herd kept moving away from us. And, uh, we actually had to sleep in the bush that night because the, the herd just kept always ahead of us. So we couldn't use the vehicles that made too much noise. We had to track them on foot. And uh, two days later, we eventually encountered the herd. And it was like the most unbelievable experience. Uh, you cannot imagine what it was like. It was straight out of, uh, what is that marvelous uh, film, you, you know, um, with, uh, with. Stuart I know Gr- the film too. And I can't remember the something of Africa. You uh, know. Yes. Anyway, uh, King Solomon's Mines. Um, oh, I was thinking something else. Also uh, spectacular. Yeah. And, and of course, there was the African Queen and all those marvels mm-hmm. in the 1950s. Anyway, we eventually came across this herd and the, the, the head of the safari pointed out to the, to the hunter, this, this one guy who was the stockbroker. He said, that old bull on the right-hand side of the herd, that's the one, you, the one you must aim for because he's old. He's no longer in charge of the herd. You can see that the younger bull elephants have taken charge. Take him out. Now, they don't, they don't use the word shoot or kill, but take him out mm-hmm. is a nice word of saying you can murder him, you know. Right. <laughs> anyway, uh, and he wasn't a very good shot. So I positioned myself right behind him, and there he had his rifle. Thought and you he, were safe, huh? <laughs> 
No, I wanted to get a shot of him in my frame and yeah. the elephant in the background so that I could get him in the same shot together. And he shot and he missed. Mm-hmm. And so the herd went crazy. They went scattering in every direction, except for one female who stayed behind. She didn't move. She stayed there. When the dust all settled, she was there because she was guarding her calf. There was a baby next to her. Oh, obviously, yeah. she must have felt that her baby was in danger. And the minute she saw this hunter in front of me, she started to charge. She mm-hmm. started to charge him. She wanted to kill him because she was protecting her baby. Right. Well, he ran out of my frame. He ran out of the picture quickly enough. <laughs> I couldn't yeah. move. I had this heavy camera at a guy next to me holding a big battery. Those days, the <laughs> things ran on big wet cell batteries. You know, you needed someone to run that. It's not like today where you have a video camera in your phone. You know, when right. we're talking right. about heavy stuff, I could not move. And all I could see in my, in my viewfinder was this elephant coming towards me. She was, she, if she could not stop, she would have re- ran straight into me and killed me. And just when she was about maybe eight or 10 feet away from me, I heard bam over my shoulder. And it was the leader of the expedition. He had a rifle and he shot her right in between her eyes in the forehead. And she dropped onto her legs, uh, for, uh, her front legs buckled. And she killed over and she looked at me and I, I knew that she knew that I wasn't the one responsible for threatening her mm-hmm. child, you know. Right. And I made but a that was the Sangoma. Did you know immediately that that, that no, not, the not Sangoma? Then. It, was, it was only that night when, when we were sitting back at base camp. You know, they were drinking. You know what? I'm going to have to break for take a break right now. I'm sorry to interrupt this um, right now, but I have to. Um, so let's take a break, and then we're going to come back. And I do want to find out who the most evil person in the world was that you were in their best friend's company. And then uh, let's come back on how did the shaman save your life? So let's take a moment and come back. Uh, join us again to find these out. Your favorite Voice America Talk Radio Network shows and hosts are in your car, outdoors, and wherever you need them to be. Listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. One thing's for certain. Life is uncertain. Do you navigate the unknowns? Visit aviewthroughtheveil.com to sign up for psychic readings and classes with Barb Crowley. You can schedule one-to-one sessions with Barb for personal and relationship counseling, pet communication, mediumship, career and business direction, or sign up for one of her classes. Everyone has answers through the metaphysical plane, but they need help to access them. Get the help you need today. Visit aviewthroughtheveil.com. Get the news on our shows and other happenings by following us on Twitter. Find us at VoiceAmericaTRN or Twitter.com forward slash VoiceAmericaTRN. You are listening to Metaphysics, A View Through the Veil with Barb Crowley. To reach the live show, please call in to 1-888-346-9141. That's 1-888-346-9141. You may also send an email to aviewthroughtheveil at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. 
Okay, and welcome back here. We're back with Lionel Friedberg, and he's telling us he's he's telling us about uh, the Sangoma prediction in his life. And one thing he's going to tell us is about who the most evil person in the world was, that he stood next to the person who's closest to him. So I'm going to bring back Lionel to give us that piece of information and also how a shaman saved his life, how a Sangoma saved his life. Welcome back. Thank you. So in addition to the fact that, you know, this woman had foreseen this elephant saga and all the rest of it, she, one of the most extraordinary things, as I said earlier, was that I would meet one of the most, I would meet a man who was close to the most evil, evil person who ever lived. And it was in the 1980s, I was doing a series of documentaries on the history of aviation in Africa. And uh, in 1934, the airline in South Africa ordered a brand new aircraft from Germany to be flown out down to South Africa as part of the airline. Now, flying a, an airplane at that time in the early 30s, all the way from a, the factory in Germany to South Africa was a big, big deal. Because there weren't air fields, there were you know, very limited uh, weather forecasting conditions, um, uh, facilities, and all sorts of stuff. So it was a major expedition to do that. And I wanted to do, do a story about that, the delivery flight of those airplanes. And in our research, we found out that one of the pilots was still alive. And I thought, oh, my word, we've got to find this guy. And so anyway, he was living in retirement in, near Munich in a little small town called Amersi. And we, we tracked him down. And I said, we've got to go and interview this guy. So the night before we um, met him uh, to do the interview, uh, we were joined by a, a member of the German government at that time. It was still Bonn. Uh, Western East Germany hadn't combined yet. And so the, uh, the head of the government in, in, in West Germany at the time was in Bonn. And there was a guy from the foreign office there with us who facilitated this interview. And uh, the night before we did the interview, he came up to me and he said, let's have some wine. And we, you know, he poured wine and he, we were drinking away. And about midnight, he said to me, how much do you really know about this pilot? And I said, well, what is there to know? You know, all I want to know from him is, is the story of that delivery flight. And he said, do you realize that this guy used to, used to be within the Luftwaffe? But not only that, he was Adolf Hitler's personal pilot. And you could have floored me. I was absolutely shocked. Yeah, that's I had huge. no idea. I mean, that's a big deal, right? Right, uh, that's huge. <laughs> the fact that he was so still next, alive was amazing. <laughs> he was in his late, I think he was like 89 at the time or something like that. Mm -hmm. The next day we get to his house. He was as charming as can be. This was his third wife. They were absolutely sweethearts. We did an interview. I was told, don't ask anything about the war, and which I respected. So all I talked about was the delivery flight. And at the end of the interview, he, did, he spoke in German, and, and the man from the foreign office was translating for me. And at the end of the interview, I said to him, you know, in German, Danke schön, you know, uh, thank you very much. And then he said to me, um, Herr Friedberg, uh, he pointed up at the wall and he said, there's, there's a photograph there. And he got up and he said, do you want to know about this photograph? And I went up with him to look at the photograph and it was a shot of him and Adolf Hitler standing in front of one of these airplanes that we'd been talking about. Mm -hmm. And he said, do you want to know about this? And I said, yeah, bitte, yes, please tell me about that. And he called his wife and he said to her, bring the photograph albums. Oh, wait a minute. Before you get too far into this, I want to warn you that we're running out of time. I want yeah. you to finish this thought. I'm sorry to do this, but I definitely want I want your life saved by the Sangoma before that at the end of our interview. So I'm sorry. Go ahead. But I wanted to warn you of the timing. Yeah. So anyway, he, you know, he revealed in these photograph albums the entire internal history of the Third Reich 
of him was Hitler and Goering and, and Himmler, all of those people. And how close it was. It was an incredible experience. It was the most amazing day. And it was only at, at the end of the day, as we were driving away, when I looked back at him, he was waving with his wife, waving goodbye to us. And I said, that's what that woman told me. Right, right. Meet the man who was the most evil person in the world. Uh, but now I want to tell you the most amazing thing of all. Do you want to have a break And before I tell you the story? No, about we're out of time on breaks. We're out of time. <laughs> Go so right into it. But- in, in 2000, I went back to South Africa. I went to go and see a Sangoma. I wanted, I was suffering from kidney disease. I was suffering from, and nothing were, was. It sounded to me like you were dying, not only suffering. I was on the verge of losing my kidneys. I was yeah. either going to be on dialysis or I was going to die. And um, mm-hmm. a friend of mine said to me, go to South Africa, go and see one of these traditional healers. Maybe they can help you. And I went and I met this guy in Swaziland, Eswatini, this little mountain kingdom that I mentioned earlier on. And uh, this guy arrived, I was in a hut and the hut was filled with women beating drums and there was a fire in the middle of the floor and this guy was dressed in animal skins and beads and, and all the regalia of a sangoma and he arrived there and his eyes were absolutely bloodshot and he came in there and he said, yeah, <laughs> so he was a wild animal and he dropped down on all fours and he came crawling across the floor to me. He was, he looked like he was, had, had done, as though he had become a hyena. That's the, 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 the body language he was giving. And he came to my body and he started smelling me all the way from my feet, all the way up to my torso. And when he got to my kidneys, he didn't know what was wrong with me. And when he got to my kidneys, he started to heave. He started to become ill. And an assistant ran over and he vomited into a barrel. Mm-hmm. And then he went around the other side of my body and to the right kidney. And he started to do the same thing. He breathed like this, like an animal, you know. And then he started to heave and he vomited again into the barrel. And I was told afterwards, he stood up in front of me at the end of it, speaking Swazi. I didn't understand, but the translators told me. He said that this man has removed from your body the bad stuff that is making you sick. He's taken it out of your body. He, first of all, how did he even identify where my kidneys were or that my kidneys were plaguing me? Right. And then to get rid of it by actually in- ingesting it and then vomiting it out, I believe that this guy played a major role in helping cure my illness. And because, you are cured now. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm in remission. My kidneys are, are seriously impaired, but I, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm still around. I've had this illness now for over 30 years. So they can stop the illness. They can't reverse the damage. Well, if your kidneys are really badly damaged, you know, there's... Well, there's that's no, it. Yeah. That. I want to ask you what it felt like, even though you came from South Africa and yeah. you grew up there and, and, you know, you weren't part of that medicine, but you knew about it from being such a small child. Didn't that terrify you walking in there and then having him with the red eyes behaving that way? How did that... Well, you know, I I had seen so much of that in earlier years. I did a series on the history of the tribes of South Africa called Mm -hmm. the Tribal Identity for television in the 70s. And I had seen many, many incidents like that in South Africa. Often I'd seen exorcisms. I had seen people healed. I had seen people who were cured in the most extraordinary ways. So it wasn't new to me. But when it happens to you yourself, I mean, it's it's like mind, it's it's life-changing. It's totally life-changing. And I think the takeaway lesson of all of this is that, you know, these guys, they don't go to university. They don't go to, you know, huge institutions where they study uh, um, systems that, you know, take six, seven, eight years to learn. 
They go and sit at the foot of a master and they learn the techniques and, mm-hmm. and they are connected with the world and the cosmos and the secrets of the cosmos in a way that we don't understand. We in the West do not understand how it works, but they are absolutely in touch with truths that we know nothing about. Our culture prevents us from going there. Our lifestyle, our system, our way of life. Our ignorance. <laughs> uh, prevents us from going there, but right. these people do go there and it absolutely works. And, you know, shamanism is, you're not unique to Africa, of course. Look mm-hmm. at the North American shamans. Look at the right. shamans in South America, like Peru. And of course, you find them in all over Asia as well. So I think what it teaches me is we have to be respectful of cultures and systems and ways that are not our own. And we have to pay respect to that mm-hmm. and be respectful of that because there's more to the world and more to the cosmos than we know. And, um, you know, I, am, I end my book forever in my veins. I end it with a message and I say that one thing I absolutely do know, whether you're a person or a pony or a petunia, we're all connected. We are all one. We're all connected via some strange, mysterious cosmic grid to one another. And we are all able to connect to the same system that makes the universe work. Some mm-hmm. of us, we may not necessarily understand it or quantify it or be able to put labels on it, but that does exist. And we need to realize that. I mean, you take yourself, how do you know what you know when you're helping people? You have this power, you have the psychic gift. You are, you are also tapping into that source. It's right. the basic source of the universe. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, in our Western society, we are not taught that stuff. And it's a great shame. Mm-hmm. Now, in Africa, though, they can't go, you were telling me this earlier uh, before the show, you can't go directly to that source. They must go to the ancestors. In um, the African healing paradigm, it's always yeah. the ancestors. And it's also, uh, the, 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 if you want to reach out to God, and there are many words for God, by the way, in, in the, in, in, in the, in the um, African languages, um, Kosinkulu uh, is, is one of them. But you don't go directly. You, you, you've got to go through the ancestral route. Through mm-hmm. the ancestors is your, is, is your route to get to a higher source. But you can't go direct. You've got to go through the ancestors. And, you know, um, it works. It absolutely works. We have time for one more quick story. How about the no color? There's no color. Well, no color was I was in, in, uh, in, 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 I think it was 1990. I was doing a documentary for PBS uh, in Antarctica. And it was about um, how climate change and, uh, and, and, and pollution affects the whole planet. And the only way to do that is to go to a place where there is, are no large human populations. So we went to Antarctica to do this. The film was called Secrets from a Frozen World. And um, I was, we were down there and it was Christmas. It was Christmas 1990. That's right. I remember distinctly now. It was Christmas 1990. And we were down there in the summer. It was in, it was in December, December 1990. And so the sun never set because you're so far south at that time of the, that the, the sun only dips down to the horizon and then comes up again. And it was midnight and everybody was partying aboard the ship. The, the captain had stopped the ship. It was a scientific research ship. And I went up to the top deck. I put on my parka, my, you know, my heavy jacket. And I took my notebook with me to, to write up my notes. I did that every single day. I, I keep notes of everything. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, and thank goodness I did that because without my notes, I would never have been able to write forever in my bands. And I looked around and I thought, what is this world? This is a world without color. It is a world where it is only white. It's like being inside a translucent egg. And it suddenly hit me. God, that's what that woman foresaw. She told me this 30 years ago. I would go there. A world without color. That is amazing. Um before we go, I want everybody to be able to get hold of you and get hold of your book so they can go to your website or you want to give me your website and, and where they can get your book and what you have coming up. Yeah, it's Lionel Friedberg, L-I-O-N-E-L-F-R-I-E-D-B-E-R-G.com. Lionelfriedberg.com is my website and they can actually read a chapter from each of my books in there, including Forever in My Veins. Mm-hmm. And the book is available now from Barnes & Noble, from Amazon.com. Most bookstores have it, uh, and it's available right now. And I'd love folks to read it because I think it will change their perspective of themselves and the world around them. Um, yeah. That's why I wrote it. I had, to, I, had to, I had to share this message with the world. I couldn't mm-hmm. keep it myself. I had to give it. I had to share it with folks. And, um, you know, everybody who's read the book says, Wow. I never knew the stuff, you know. Right. And I'm and I, glad you did because we are so caught in such a small, um, a, a small, I, I hate to use the word ignorant, but I have no other word for it because our world is so small, it is ignorant. But do you have anything coming up? I've got another book coming out at the end of the month uh, on the history of aviation in, in Southern Africa. It's mm-hmm. called Flying Springbuck. And I'm working on a novel right now. So at the moment, I'm driving Busy a work man, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Busy man. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We got to keep doing things. And then my wife and I have just made a film on the history of music in the movies. So um, wow. that, that'll yeah. be available soon as well. That'll also Great. come out. Will you so, go yeah. back in and do anything more in shamanism in Africa? I would love to go back and meet some of my friends who are shamans back there. Uh, will yeah. I do it more movies? I don't know about that. It's probably been done. I mean, I think there's a great idea there for a, a, a novel or a feature film story based mm-hmm. on that. But maybe that'll come later down, down the pike a bit. I've and I want to ask very stuff. quickly, if, if you get sick now, do you go to a doctor or do you go back to south africa <laughs> well you know what i'll tell you i do both i do mm-hmm. both i you do care. both i do both i you go to both worlds you've got to you've got to be able to do that and and i do um because i respect them both equally and right. i've got some fantastic doctors here in la but i have some fantastic people that i can refer to back in africa as well that's great thank you so much for being on my radio show it has been fascinating and i really appreciate your being here and sharing your story with us Thank you, Bob. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for Metaphysics, A View Through the Veil. Please tune in for another edition with your host, Barb Crowley, next Friday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time and 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Enjoy your upcoming weekend.